If you live in North America, you got to know summer's coming to an end. We're into August here, the end of August, and it's slowly winding down, which means only one thing for your motorcycle. You got to head south. You got to pack it up and head south. I think it was uh, Grant from Horizons Unlimited who said, um, if you're feeling too cold, something along the lines, if you're feeling too cold, head south. <laughs> it's a pretty simple thing. We got a great show coming up for you. We're going to finish up with Simon and Lisa, at least for this time. We're going to finish up with Simon and Lisa. We're going to do part two, and they've got some great information here. Simon has some great tips for riding in the heat that he's putting together for an article for a, a magazine, quite a large magazine, but I'll leave the name out for now. And also, strangely enough, about TKC80s. You want to hear what they have to say about TKC80s, the Continental Tires that we were just bragging about on the last episode. You'll want to hear their take on it. We're also going to talk with Giant Loops' Harold Cecil. So stay with us. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are? We are part of To Ride. We're not far, are we? We are. I'm so making fun of you guys. Let's do this again. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are To Ride the World. You are listening to. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are To Ride the World. And you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm sure you've seen it on airplanes, the horseshoe-shaped pillow that people wear around their neck to stop their head from flopping over to the side when they sleep. Or race car drivers or motorcycle racers, for instance, that wear the neck collar that holds their head from bobbing around. Well, Giant Loop has something similar, except that it's a pack for your motorcycle. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's a really cool thing. It's a big horseshoe-shaped pack that goes on the back of your motorcycle and fastens on with straps. It doesn't need a rack or anything. It's a simple design, yet it's quite complicated. I mean, you can put a pack on the back of your bike, but to get it to hold on there and take the abuse of being bounced around all the time, well, that takes some design to make it waterproof. That also takes some more design. So I called up Giant Loop, and I found out the owner was... Harold Olaf Cecil. Located in... Bend, Oregon, USA. Giant Loop may be a small company, but I counted over 20 products on their website, and that's pretty darn good. I was intrigued the more I looked into the company because this isn't a subsidiary of some large company that came up with a product idea and developed it and launched it. This is two guys who were riders who said, hey, we've got a problem with our bags. We want better storage, better capacity. And they went out and made a product. And then once they made it, they said, this is really cool. Let's take it to market. And boom, next thing you know, you've got this successful company. And I think that's a great story. Well, you know, it really was just an outgrowth of riding here in the desert uh, in East Oregon, um, heading out from Bend uh, toward um, the southeast corner of the state, um, and wanting to do big self-supported trips out there on a, on a dirt bike and carry camping gear and basically ride around the subframe of the motorcycle and really positioned the weight tight to the bike and, and eliminated a bunch of points of failure that we had seen you know, the desert um, kind of eat other luggage solutions. And after a, a period of, of sort of just experimentation, when that horseshoe-shaped bag was developed, uh, it was about the time the recession hit. I was kind of in a place where I was looking for something other than the, you know, marketing work I was doing for other people. And 
my my riding buddy w- was as well, and so we launched the company in 2008 with that one saddle bag, and uh, had a, I think it was 150 of them sewn up at the beginning, and put up a website, and uh, it sort of just took off from there. So with a website, you reached the world. Yeah, and it just the power of the internet uh, made it so that we pretty instantly connected with a whole you know community of adventure riders around the world and started selling the bags and uh, within the first six months we had a distributor in, in the UK with Adventure Spec. Uh, we were working with Adventure Moto in Australia and yeah it just re- really took off from there and then uh, a couple of years ago uh, I bought my founding partner out and, and now I'm the sole owner of the company and uh, they're four of us work in the shop full-time now. Why did you chase after soft luggage when you were um, first looking for a solution? Why not just turn to the hard luggage that's available out there? Well, uh, you know, it's honestly just having seen the relative merits of what was available, um, we we didn't like the certain aspects of hard luggage. I mean, for starters, um, it never really made sense to me that you would want to bolt dozens of extra pounds to a dirt bike in particular. You know, the dirt bike engineers and manufacturers are going to great lengths to try and shave pounds off these bikes to make them perform better. And then we're taking it several steps backwards by putting, uh, you know, 40 pounds of, of, of aluminum boxes and, and metal racks in the bikes. Um, and uh, we had seen the all the attachment points and the luggage racks themselves um, fail out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and uh, friends would have to just use ratchet straps or whatever to sort of cobble their stuff together to get through the trip. That and the, just the way that traditional hard luggage positions the weight on the bike, which is farther away from the center of the bike, it really just uh, you know affects the way the bike handles a lot more. Uh, than keeping it tight and to the closer to the center of the bike. And honestly, I, I just don't really have much of an appreciation for the putting a cube on what, what's otherwise a kind of a sleek looking machine. You, you know, I just uh, aesthetically never very fond of the, the sort of lack of, of, style and finesse uh, of the typical, you know, hard, hard luggage system. So, you know, we were, we were looking to uh, basically address all those things and eliminate points of failure, um, keep the load tighter uh, to the bike, keep it close to the center uh, of the bike in, in both directions, fore and aft and side to side. Um, aesthetically create something that, that you know, meshed with and, and complemented the lines of the motorcycle and, instead of sort of being uh, in, in conflict with them. Those were our driving, you know, considerations in terms of going with, with soft luggage versus hard luggage. In a broad sense, I mean, dare I say it seems quite simple. You build a piece of luggage that wraps tight around. I mean, and you see there's a lot of merit there. I mean, it's actually tight right into the bike, so you've got yourself more compact. The big thing is having it hold on and having the luggage survive. Clearly, you're very successful at it. So tell me, how are you doing it? How are you building this thing tough enough with strong enough attachment points to keep it in place on the motorcycle while you're bouncing around the backcountry? Well, you know, we... uh we bring to this uh, experience from the outdoors and, and 
Our product designer is an award-winning um, backpack designer who, who's uh, you know quite well known in the ultralight um, backpacking circles, and so we are trying to bring more of this perspective of um, rock climbers and mountaineers and you know whitewater uh, you know paddlers and and some of that technology and and mindset uh, to motorcycling essentially. Um, so we have a prototype shop right here where we're able to build working rideable prototypes and we just take them out and, and ride test them and, and we punish them and we we find out where the, the weak points are and we try to, you know, refine and address and, um, you know, we really build our bags, you know, to to withstand the, the punishment that, that they're, you know, a, an adventure bike is, is going to dish out. And so uh, we're using military spec materials. Um, we're double inspecting uh, our bags before they go out the door. Everything's backed by, by a lifetime warranty. Um, you know, we're just, uh, you know, our hope is that we're building bags that are going to give people, you know, many seasons of enjoyment and and no little to no worry about their luggage at all you know just strap it on and and go ride and you know we don't we're hoping to you know eliminate luggage as even you know a concern or, or part of the the thought process it's just a container to put your things in and, and the focus can remain on, on the bike and the riding and the experience of of exploring the these amazing places that the bike gives us access to I certainly see the um, advantages of hard luggage versus soft luggage, and I guess it just depends on what you're doing, you know, which one you end up choosing. But um, there's something to be said for soft luggage if you're dropping your bike a lot. Um, I run soft luggage on my bike, and I know that when I drop it, well, first of all, I don't have to pick it up and look at all the scratches and the dints, but there's something about the weight distribution, isn't there, when it hits? It's not hitting the, as hard in the subframe as it does with a soft bag. Now, obviously, you're, someone pointed out this. We did a piece on hard versus soft luggage uh, a number of episodes ago, and someone pointed out to me, and I thought I should mention this now, that yes, it does absorb, but it's your, your stuff inside that's absorbing the impact. And that's true. But what I do is I just pack accordingly. But that aside, it does really spread out the impact. Well, you know, it does. And I think over the years, you know, having unfortunately been the crash test dummy more more than once with, with my gear, I I think the worst damage I've ever suffered was um, a dented cooking pot, you know, in a low corner of one of the bags. So as you said, if you sort of are mindful of what you're pack, packing in the impact zone, um, then you can pretty much eliminate damage. And uh, just like automobiles are designed with crumple zones to absorb impact, uh, you know, I think that the same analogy applies to soft luggage versus hard luggage. A rigid structure uh, transfers all that energy uh, directly into the subframe, and and there's little in the, the way of give there. So, you know, don't get me wrong, we're not anti-hard luggage, and in fact, what we find now is that many of our customers will own a set of hard luggage, and that's what they use for uh, commuting to work, um, riding uh, on a more pavement-oriented trip, or um, you know, on, on a less demanding maybe gravel road tour. But when they want to 
really get a little bit more out there and ride a little bit more rough terrain and, and that sort of thing, then they'll switch to the, the soft luggage for that application. You know, everybody has their own riding needs and style and just like there's no one motorcycle that, that everybody agrees on, um, you know, luggage and apparel and all these other, other things are the same way. It's a matter of personal preference and taste. And, you know, for us, you know, we just, again, really wanted to be able to ride hard and, and fast and, and enjoy the, you know, more of a dirt biking experience without um, having to even think or worry about our, our gear being strapped to the bike. Harold, do you have some packing techniques that you use um, to avoid anything that might get crushed or also just make the whole thing work better for soft luggage in general? Well, I think that packing in, in general, there are some basic concepts, you know, starting with eliminating weight and bulk. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the, the things that, that uh, almost all of us can take a look at our gear and find ways to um, scale down its bulk and and reduce its weight. Um, last summer, for example, I upgraded my camping equipment after, you know, not having uh, uh, purchased new camping gear for probably a decade, and I reduced the size of my my gear by probably half and cut the, the weight by at least half by simply just, you know, looking to some more modern uh, technology from you know, the outdoor industry uh, for my pack, my camping gear, you know, and then beyond that, how we position the weight on the bike has an enormous impact on how, how the bike's going to handle. So keeping the weight low, uh, keep, keeping weight below seat height, keeping weight close to the center of the bike. Um, these are all, ways that we reduce the impact that the, the carrying the weight on, on the bike is going to have on the handling and, and performance of the bike. Those are the things that, that we're thinking about primarily is uh, when we're packing. And, and again, I think regardless of your luggage solution, that those things are, are universally true. When you mentioned keeping weight to the center of the bike, do you also make bags that are tank bags to hold gear? Uh, yeah, so we're trying to position our gear on both the front and the back of the bike to distribute the weight across the bike more as well. So um, we make a, a full line of tank bags as well as uh, some accessory pockets and, and what we call pannier pockets that uh, you know enable you to compartmentalize uh, your gear. That's another. Um, sort of packing concept that we're trying to apply to our designs is to make them um, modular and customizable. Uh, it's easier to have multiple small compartments to keep your gear organized in and, and uh, positioned in various locations on the bike. So, and we're trying to address the whole picture. And in, in fact, we, you know, we don't describe ourselves as a luggage company. We call ourselves a, a packing systems company. Have you ever thought of designing a bag that um, that can't be cut, like for security reasons, with Kevlar or some sort of mesh or something in it? Well, you know, um, there there's a whole world of possibilities in terms of design, and um, we are constantly having to weigh things like what does that adding uh, a feature to a design? What does that mean to the retail price? And um, is the difference in cost, uh, you know, justified um, by the number of people who really 
um, need or want that feature. So, you know, the honest truth is, uh, Jim, with security, I, I think that there's a, a, a vast gulf between perception and reality. And, and and what I mean by that is that I think we all have a notion that um, that somehow locks make things more secure, you know, and I, I think that my grandfather used to say locks keep honest people honest. And I, uh, the professional motorcycle thief is going to take the entire bike, luggage and all, load it in a truck, and it's going to be gone before you even know what happened. So no amount of, of mesh or locks or <laughs> anything else is going to prevent that particular scenario. So, you know, um, we have customers who use uh, products such as the Pack Safe. Um, mesh nets to um, secure their luggage on the bike. Um, so that's a that's a workable option. We also um, have tried to address some of these concerns by adding pass-throughs to our bags so that you can secure them to the bike. So at least you're slowing down the sort of grab and and run type, uh, you know, opportunistic thief. Um, but I often tell people that that I, I think the best security is putting a cover over the whole bike, you know, carrying a lightweight cover and, and just keeping uh, everything sort of out of plain sight and adding that extra um, couple seconds that it would take the potential thief to look underneath the cover and, and to get into your things underneath the cover, I think is often about as good as, as any uh, set of locks out there. Um, you know, most locks, honestly, I, you know, uh, the locking panniers and, and so on, you you know, with some simple tools or, you know, uh, a few swift uh, kicks with a boot, you can probably get into them anyway. So, so security, uh, you know, again, I, I think is uh, probably a bigger concern in, in like big cities in the U.S. and Canada. I think it's probably less of a concern outside of the U.S. Um, when we're traveling internationally and that... Uh, it's really easy to buy the goodwill of a, of somebody local when we're traveling and ask them to keep an eye uh, on your bike by, you know, giving them a small gift or a, a few dollars or um, outside of the U.S. Many hotels and places like that are, are very welcoming of, of motorcycle travelers and they'll let you roll the bike into a courtyard or right into your room. So in six years of making uh, luggage now, I know of one customer who's had a bag stolen off his bike, and, and um, that was in Singapore. So those are pretty good odds, um, and I uh, so I don't worry about it too much, and, and I've, I've made myself a guinea pig in that I never take my luggage off my bike anymore. And in fact, I usually just leave whatever I don't need to take with me to my uh, hotel room or, or campsite in, in the bags. Uh, and, you know, knock wood, I, uh, I have yet to have anybody bother anything anywhere. So that, that includes, uh, you know, ha having had the chance to ride th this year in uh, Mexico as well as in Norway and around the United States. So I guess that's my long-winded take on, on security. <laughs>
No, that's great because you've got some great things in there. I totally agree with your grandfather, by the way, I, and I think probably everyone would, that a little tiny lock on that's only going to keep the honest person honest. But you, you brought up an excellent point, which I am a huge fan of, is covering your motorcycle. There is something about walking by and seeing that bike there and looking, ooh, look at that, you know, and it's an expensive machine and you can see that there's certain things on, even if it's just the, the bike gauges can be, you know, an attractor for people. But as soon as you cover it, it loses all it, its dazzle. It loses everything. It just becomes this blob underneath a tarp that is somewhat uninteresting. Harold, you alluded to uh, talking about outdoor use or, or um, off-highway use and the relationship between the motorcyclists and other outdoor users. What were you referring to there? The, the concept of the outdoors and, um, and how we as, as motorcyclists interface with other people who enjoy the outdoors. And so I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that I think that we've seen a decade or two of building animosity between um, power sports and human-powered sports and uh, a segmentation of those of us who enjoy the outdoors. You know, we uh, there's sort of the hunting and fishing crowd and sort of the, you know, the backpacking crowd. And then there's the power sports crowd. And, and at the end of the day, like a, a lot of us move between all three of those, those groups. And, and at, at the end of the day, we all share a desire just to be in the outdoors and experience that in, in different ways. And I, I guess I, I would really like to just challenge our, our community to try and build some bridges. Um, I think that we have imperiled riding opportunities uh, around us all that are, are are disappearing every day. And it takes various forms. Sometimes it's as simple as like a, a great, uh, you know, rough road gets paved over and, and it's no longer much of, a, of an adventure uh, taking that road. Or it's a, a long, you know, uh, favored road or trail um, gets shut down to, to motorized traffic altogether, or uh, you know, OHV areas being being shut down, or or this sort of thing. So you know, I I see this stuff happening. I think it's happening everywhere, and um, and it concerns me. And I, I think that you know we're at a a point where um, adversity and conflict, and you know, between these user groups, it isn't really doing anybody any good, and is there, there are more of us um, sharing the planet. We need to find ways to, to cooperate and, you know, accommodate each other and, uh, instead of, uh, you know, just watching our, our riding opportunities being, being chipped away uh, slowly over time. So just that's one, one thought. <laughs> How can we build bridges? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's, I, when I look at, at our local community here, you know, I'm I'm also uh, a pretty avid bicyclist and 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 hiker and, and backpacker and, and so on. And um, I, I look at some of these other groups, like our our local mountain biking community, for example, has done a really great job um, organizing themselves. Um, sending representatives to all the, you know, uh, public meetings and, and so on where decisions are being made about uh, recreational use on public lands and so on. And by 
cooperating and participating in the process, they've helped build one of the most extensive mountain bike trail systems in, in the country. And um, the motorcycle side of things, I don't see that happen very much. And for whatever reason, I think maybe we're just all, you know, independent spirits or or something like that. But um, it seems like what I usually see happen is that people don't show up for meetings, they don't participate, and then they... Uh, and then they're upset when the decision gets gets made that had been you know discussed you know for a period of years before action uh, took place. And so you know I think that we as a community need to find ways on a local level um, to uh, you know organize ourselves and start participating more in in the process where uh, these decisions are are being made. And I think that uh, you know that any sort of change and and bridge building happens at that sort of grassroots community level and so you know i've been puzzling over that one for a while myself because i'm just as guilty as the, the next person i'd much rather be riding my motorbike than sitting in a meeting with the forest service or or that sort of thing but uh but yeah i i think that that it, it is uh you know we're on the top of you know, having to defend what we've got or lose it. I think you made an excellent point, several excellent points, but but one with um, the fact there's more people on the planet and uh, there's other people that are organizing, I mean, you could say, you know, with their own agenda. And if we don't gather together and stand up and speak out and let people know we're here and we have, uh, you know, um, things that we'd like to do, then you just get forgotten about. And I've just seen that locally here as well. I, I, I saw a post not long ago where someone was complaining that the uh, motorcyclists weren't included in a particular uh, rail line that had been turned into a record recreational opportunity. And someone got on there and said, you know, the ATVers have worked very, very hard to organize themselves and get some government representation, etc. But although some people who ride motorcycles had showed some interest, there was no follow-up, there was no organization. And, and because of that, it was just simply left off. So now you can no longer ride a motorcycle down this railway bed, but you can ride an ATV, which is which is almost a joke if you think about it. But that's the danger of, of having no representation and, and not getting in there and making a voice heard. So, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think we have to get together and we have to organize a little bit. Yeah, we've seen some local clubs here just doing some amazing things, like the you know Coconino Trail Riders down in Arizona putting in you know 100 miles of single track trail. And so you know, uh, once we can uh, you, you know unite together, you know, I think that, that you know we become we become more powerful and we we're able to accomplish more for sure. And club, clubs can be a big part of that. Um, you know, the club, club also, you know, it gives you the opportunity to engage things on the, you know, the fun side of things and the hands-on side of things, and uh, as well as the, you know, that the sort of less fun, uh, you know, sitting in meetings and, and stuff like that. So, uh, I think that's a that's a great idea and a great suggestion. And uh, um, if you have a, a local club that's a really good place to start for sure harold thanks very much for coming on the show it was a pleasure having you well thanks i am i'm honored to have been a guest you, you have kind of an a-list of of people on there when i was looking at your website and it was like oh geez i'm i i hope i can you know hold my ground i i've got some big shoes to fill here but, i think you've done a good job uh, so nicely done and uh yeah.
Okay, well, thanks, man, and good luck, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks, Harold. Cheers. I've been speaking with Harold Cecil from Giant Loop. The world's longest continuous motorcycle ride by a team, 78 countries, six continents, and 331,000 miles, and still going. Over 11 years ago, Simon and Lisa Thomas left their home for what was supposed to be an 18-month journey. 11 years later, 11 years plus later, they're still on the road. So what started out as a reasonable-sized journey continued on to what many would say is a lifetime. I mean, over a decade on the road, that's a long time. And in a way, Adventure Rider Radio got caught up in that when talking with Simon and Lisa, because what would normally have been a 45-minute interview turned out to be three hours. So on the last show, we had to cut it off just as we started to talk about motorcycles because we ran out of time. We were way over time already. Now, for some reason, you missed part one. Go back to July 27, 2014 on our show list. You'll see one marked 11 years of riding adventure motorcycles around the world. Lisa and Simon Thomas. Listen to that one first, then come back to this one, because we're going to pick up exactly where we left off on that one. Now, you have to remember, here's the setting. They're in a sweaty little concrete bunker in Mexico (laughs) on the beach, sweating it out, even turning the fan off, as I requested they did so we don't get the fan noise. This isn't stress for them. These are people who have been through unbelievable things in the 11 plus years they've been on the road so for them to sit in a hot sweaty bunker i almost think it just pumped them up and it kept them going for the three hours that we talked so here we go where we left off simon and lisa thomas we get asked a lot about the ideal bike choice i think people are surprised by my answer the ideal bike choice is whatever turns you on um if you, if you plan to ride a bike because of all the sensibilities of a decision, the, the practicalities of, well, I can do this and do that, it's not, it's not going to work in the long term. You've got, to make, you've got to make sure that no matter how ill you are, how tired you are, whatever the circumstance may be, that you genuinely want to throw your leg over that machine every single day, whether it's a Goldwing, a BMW, or you know, a 90cc posty bike. Yeah. <laughs> As long as you want to get on that bike, that's that's the motivating factor to, to for, for bike choice. Because if you if you make your journey long enough, no matter where you are, no matter how long you go for, sooner or later it will break down. You are going to have to repair it. You are going to have to fix it. No motorcycle journey ever finished because a bike broke down. They finished because the rider decided not to fix it that one last time. So you've got to, you've got to make sure you make a sensible decision, but make sure that you're making the decision from the heart. Whether it's a Harley, a BMW, a KTM, it doesn't matter. But mainly our restrictions were at the period of time. Simon's is a 1999. We bought it. We could not afford to change it. Um, I had to change mine, and there wasn't a lot around for me at that oh, time. Oh, everyone's reading so much into that. What? We, but, I thought well, that. we had to change mine. Yes, we yes. did. Of course yes. we did. We had yes. to. And, and Simon has an opinion, and I've given it to him. That's all there is to it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that, was, that, was, that was the bike choice. I mean, and again, the sensible answer also is that we've done a little bit of research, spoken to friends, and from what we could tell, um, and I think it's still the case today, um, the BMW engines are still the most robust, reliable engines out there. And in case anyone's wondering, no, BMW are not a sponsor. Um, if they were, you wouldn't be riding a 1999. <laughs> You'd have a new one. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, there's been, some, there's been some adaptations and 
people look at Simon's bike. No, I mean, if, if BMW is sponsoring you, they would want you to ride with their newest thing. They don't want you to tell people they can go buy an old one. They want them to buy a True. new one. They would, yes. True. And yeah. BMW, if you're listening to this, will happily take your phone call. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just just the engines, uh, the engines, the, the the reliability, the consistency and ease of maintenance. Um, I, I've got some experience helping other friends and obviously a lot of experience talking to people who repair their bikes. And there just seems to be fewer issues um, and maintenance is, is, is easy. So one of our big decisions was, OK, well, look, let's let's get an engine. You know, the engine is the heart and soul of the motor. Let's get an engine that we're going to spend as little time working on as possible. Um, and that was the BMW. I think I think that it was the right choice. It's interesting. This question, uh, when it's asked to travelers, always comes up with the same answer. Take whatever you've got, whatever you, you like to ride. But I could go and ask a, a bunch of other people, the philosophers, which bike is best. And I will get a model and I will get all the reasons behind it, why that bike is more superior to the other one. I think a lot of times what we don't take into consideration is it's not uh, about the bike, really. It's about the journey, is it not? Absolutely. Um, I mean, at the, end of, at the end of the day, a motorcycle journey in its very essence, is not a practical endeavor. Motorcycles intrinsically are more dangerous than, than cars. Um, you can't transport as much. If you're going to do something practically, if you decide that purely your, your journey is just based on practicalities and rationale, then, then go and get a freaking Jeep. Motorcycle riders, what, what separates motorcycle riders is that it's as much about the passion and the enthusiasm for the ride as it is, you know, the practicalities and, and making the journey happen. Um, and, I, and I do think that's what separates motorcycle travelers from everybody else. There is this brotherhood of motorcycling. If you have a problem, you can always rely typically on another motorcyclist to come and bail you out or at least help. But if you're making all of your decisions based on, pra on, on practical considerations, you're well, not even going to start. Don't don't start on a bike on a bike. Provide you know start it in something that uh, is going to protect you from the weather. Has got air cons, got a heater that you can lie down in the back on. Um, but at the same time, be prepared that your journey is going to be potentially less eventful, um, less changing, less eye opening. Perhaps I'm just saying less than it could have been if you were on a motorcycle. I love the fact that at the end of a day on a motorcycle, you haven't just seen the country, you've smelt it, you're wearing it on your skin, um, it, it, it physically touched you. It also enables you to be I should physically... write that down, that's kind of good. It, it also enables you to be physically touched. People don't feel like you're, you're, enclo you're enclosed away like you are in a car. Like Hang on, so you're referring four. to the fact that you, you and I think we've had more interaction, interaction. with people because we're on bikes. Yeah, people will come up and... You mean positive interaction? Well, yes, sometimes there's things not the positive side, but um, generally positive interaction. Uh, once people get over the, 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 sometimes the scare that they have, maybe they've never seen anything like you before. Well, they've never seen a male rider with boots. Yeah. Because they are surprised you're a girl. They're surprised I'm a girl, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they feel able to, to come up. They see the face. It's close to close. It's, it's, it's close by. It's face to face as opposed to being behind a window pane and being able to isolate yourself totally if you're in a 4x4 truck, etc. Um, we haven't got that. You, you have to interact. You have to face the world. Even if you don't want to, even if it's the last thing that you want to do. 
um, or maybe you think there might be a possibility of a dangerous situation, you have no choice. And sometimes those situations turn out to be some of the best. No, I think most times yeah. they do. I mean, re, re, again, if you look at the last 11 years, um, the amount of scary situations, which are the ones that everyone wants to hear about, um, they've been few and far between. It's either because we're very lucky or very careful or... Well, I don't know. I think But it's also people... just perhaps it's representational of the fact that after 11 years, I don't think we're that lucky. But I also think some people would think some of the situations that we classify as not scary would be scary for them. But they would have been scary for us initially, and in fact they were. Yeah. But as time's gone by... We accept it as, as, the norm. as the norm, probably. Yeah. People that we once would have been very intimidated by, you realise, you know what, this is just a person with the same needs, desires, um, irrespective of ideology, blah, blah, blah. There's good people, there's bad people. The bad people just tend to piss you off and get in the way and you, you deal the with them. question we had the other day, though? Are we more understanding? Are we more understanding? And I wanted to say yes, but I would... Uh, were less... I would ask that question and say, are you more understanding or less judgmental? I think I'm more understanding. I think I'm more judgmental. How so? Um... I heard, I heard before the trip began that if you're lucky enough to be born in Canada, USA, Northern Europe, you're in the 1% wealthiest in the world. And I just dismissed that information because, well, there's millions of us. How can we be the 1% wealthiest? That, that just sounds crazy. Having, having seen how the vast majority of the world doesn't live but survives, um, I find myself now a lot, when I'm in the presence of, of people, um, lucky enough to have the backgrounds that Lisa and I came from, I find myself a lot more judgmental when I see them behaving in a way that, because of my, my new perspective, um, so I, I can be very harsh on. you're less tolerant of your own society. I'm less tolerant of, of abject stupidity um, and an arrogance based on, well, it's my right. And I'm thinking, no, it, it's, it's not your right. It's a privilege. You know, life is a very precious thing. And um, there's, cer there's certain things that people expect these days. Uh, there's certain people that expect to be given this, or be provided that. And I just want to shake them and go, you know, do you have any idea how lucky you are? And I'm certainly talking about myself and Lisa because we, we were absolutely that same way. I'd find myself complaining about the cost of, of fuel and I now look back at those words and thinking, okay, the cost of fuel is high, but good Lord, I had three cars. What the hell was I bitching about? Um, so I found myself more judgmental and I found myself um, having to bite my tongue when I want to identify what somebody is doing in my eyes as just being naive or, or stupid or arrogant. And the reality is it's not my position to do that. I don't actually I don't actually have the right to face up to somebody and say, hey, blah, 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 because it is just my experience. It is just my opinion. Um, but it's I find myself being more judgmental and, le and less tolerant. But that's looking back. Um, that's perspective, you know, looking back at, at our society. I was thinking more of when you're dealing with people that you're meeting on the road, when you're running into someone new. Um, I think I think also, well, yeah, I think we've got less expectations and expectations are really only there to be disappointed. If you can get rid of those expectations of that first meeting, of that encounter, um, 
whether it's positive or negative. To be more, to be more accepting, open. I think we are way, way more accepting. On a day-to-day -day level, in terms of being on the road, yes. Um, not, not, not expecting anything from anybody, uh, which is fantastic because it means when you, when you are given a helping hand, it's often from the most unlikely source. And the amount of humbling experiences we've had, we've been in harm's way or we've had a situation where we couldn't figure something out. And you have somebody with seemingly nothing want to give you half of what they haven't got without expectation of return. Um, it is it is truly humbling and it's um, it's graciously received. And what we've what we figured out is that after the sun sets in the mountains and the imagery has disappeared from your mind, what you remember is other people. Tires wise, um, what's your choice? Do you have a choice, and and why do you use that tire in particular? Oh, I, I, I do have Continental listening. We, we have, do not have a tire sponsor. We do not have a tire sponsor, but we do use one particular tire uh, for the probably 90% of the trip. And the rest. The other 10%, uh, it was just because there's no way in hell that you could get I'm them. I'm willing to bet it's 98%. It's probably 98%. Oh, well, the other percentage we've not used them is only because you're in the middle of nowhere and you just have to make do with what you've got. We rave about the Continental TKC80s. Fabulous tire. I love it. It's a tire I use as well. Yep. And boy, Continental should definitely be there. That is an outlet. The the amount of tires that you would go through, the the coverage they would get from something that something like that. Well, Jim, the really cool part is we'd be horribly inexpensive because what I what what this is the conversation we have. Uh, we were in the Make USA. We typically okay, get your head around this. We typically get between eight to fourteen thousand miles from a rear and double that to the front. I've got buddies of mine back back in the USA who are going through a rear TKC80 in yeah around 4,000 miles, mm -hmm. um, and they're not and then and they're not doing any dirt. So why have you got a TKC80 on? High high speed does not kill these tires, but if you gra if you're gra grabbing a handful of brake, aggressively stopping oh, and pulling away on on asphalt aggressively. Any tire is going to is going to be eaten also, up. Also, the wrong tire pressure. It's very easy to uh, get the wrong tire pressure on these tires, and that creates sometimes a very strange wear pattern, especially on the front, um, or it, it can it can um, wear them down very very quickly. So, it, depending on what you're riding on, you you do need to be aware as to the uh, correct tire pressure. Lisa, at the beginning of the journey, we had we had tire issues. Well, at the beginning, that takes us for a while. Lisa rode from Nordcap. That's the most northerly tip of Europe. It's 11, it's 1,100 kilometers from the magnetic North Pole all the way down to South Africa on one rear TKC80. Again, it wasn't a choice, but necessity, but that was that was rather, rather impressive. It was, it was a little like a slick at the end of it, mind you, but... Um... Yeah, it was still the same time. On, on our start, when we're fully loaded, um, all the bags, all the fuel, which is 40 litres approximately each, and, uh, and all the uh, all the panniers and so forth, we run the tyre pressure very, very high. We're up in around the 38 to 42 psi mark. Um, if, we're, if we're in sand, uh, again, fully laden, we're in the low 20s. Lisa has to go a little bit higher uh, because she has the 650, so she has tubes. I can go a little bit lower because I haven't got to worry about tube creep because mine are tubeless. And we're both running a 21-inch uh, rim at the front. Yeah, despite it being the 650 GS and um, Simon's bike, the 1100, with parts of the 1150 on it now, um, 
we both have changed to the 21. Oh, the 650 came with uh, the, the 19, did it? Yeah, the 650 GS uh, comes with the 19. It's the Dakar that comes, which is now the, what's it classified as? Sartaya. Sartaya, yeah. Sartaya, what it's uh, called. It comes with the 21. Um, but I we changed out both of them because we do mm -hmm. a hell of a lot of off-road and we, we, we have the opportunity. We've we, we, we clocked up right now um, five, over over half a million kilometers and we're, we're estimating based on some actually calculations three weeks ago that at about between 64 and 70 percent of the entire journey has been off-road. Uh, the nice thing I find with the, the knobbies too is when they wear down you've still got your side lug so you'll still get lots of traction especially with the TKC 80s I, I yeah. find they're particularly good for that. Uh, people are concerned about uh, the TKC-80s in, in, in the wet and how are they on the roads in the wet. I mean, obviously, you've got to use your common sense, especially, you know, even if you're on a fully laden bike but and you're not using the continents, you've still got to use your common sense. But they've been fantastically consistent Overall. and predictable, whether you're riding in the rain, on, on asphalt, uh, crossing a desert. And that's what you want when you're on a bike and everything's changing all the time. You've got to have a few key items that you can absolutely depend on to behave in a certain way. And the TK, TKCs for us have been absolutely fantastic. Like, like I said, we're not sponsored, um, so that's that's from the heart. Um, we we had an interesting story um, in Pakistan. We got through India, and uh, no, we got through over the Silk Road, and our tires were looking pretty bad. And by the time we got to Through Iran, Iran and into Pakistan, into Pakistan we, we, you know, the white walls were showing and it was, it, it, it was crazy. And we'd hoped that we could last until we got to India where we knew there was possibility of getting some tires for what they call the big bikes over there. Um, but we were desperate and we needed, we had to change uh, when we reached um, Islamabad in Pakistan. So we, 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 put a, we put a shout out on a few websites, a couple of guys came back, uh, nobody had any ideas. A couple of guys came back and said, well, we were actually there a few months ago and we were camping in roughly the same spot you guys are in the middle of Islamabad, Pakistan. Um, and uh, they'd taken some old tires off, they were pretty ropey, they'd thrown them over a fence, they'd kind of discarded. So they gave us their GPS position. We figured how far could a tire roll once it's been thrown, found it amongst a bunch of garbage, stinking and looking terrible, put those tires on our bikes. And uh, I think we managed to get all the way to... I managed to get to... Mumbai. Yep, all the way to India. Halfway through India, actually. Wow, that's great. <laughs> we did not have any new tires uh, from the moment we left the U.S. all the way through Japan, Eastern Russia, Siberia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Iran, Pakistan, Nepal. all the way through India. Thailand. Did we? I got, I got my. Yeah, rear. we got our, we got our first set of new tires in Thailand. I had to get a rear in Mumbai, but there was nothing for you. Yeah, we were just using we were just using ca castoffs. Yeah, very <laughs> dangerous. When we were in uh, India, on one road, uh, Simon had a blowout. His tire had been uh, oh, perforated so many times that he actually ended up perforated. Could you not have said uh, more English? <laughs> Everybody else has punctures, but oh no, Simon's tires were perforated. Because you, we, yeah, well, there you go. had lots of holes and things in, and he had to use one of my inner tubes in the front of his. 
Um, and had to use your 17, no, your 19 inch yeah. spare energy, which we were oh, yeah, carrying by mistake yeah. in my 21. And um, you had a blowout. Very dangerous, especially in India. They'll run over you and then go, What did I run over? Um, and I slid a long way on the ground. slid a long way, and just at that second, there was no traffic on the road. For the is, first time all day. Which is so weird. No traffic on a road in India? That's never heard That of. was the guardian angel taking care of me again. Um, so yeah, that, that's very dangerous. So actually riding with, with tires that are well outside the, the worn out area. Not good. Um, yeah, just Tires and suspension. Especially with such a laden bike, with the yeah. weight. Well, when you said cast off, I, I was picturing tires that still had some tread left on. Not really. With the time you guys have on the road, you clearly are very experienced with riding in the heat. And Simon, I know you're working on an article right now for a large magazine on just that. Can you share some of your tips for riding in the heat with us now? Yeah, um, starting starting really early is a big help. Trying not to ride in the middle of the day. I mean, it sort of sounds like common sense stuff, but when you're in the thick of things, common sense tends to fly out the window. So starting really early, um, not riding in the middle of the day. One of the great tricks we've learned is if you've, if you've got some water with you, take a neck cloth, something like that, dip it in the water, do not wring it out, put it around your neck. It does a few things. As, as the water evaporates from the scarf or the material, that cools you down. Secondly, as the blood passes from your torso through your neck, the actual material, the, the, the coolness, affects the blood temperature, which goes to your brain. That also helps. Um. Always, always cover up. Wear your jacket, wear your trousers. It, it may seem silly. Oh my God, aren't you hot in all of that kit? Yes, you are, but you're keeping that layer of perspiration on your skin, which when the air comes over, it's helping to evaporate, which keeps you cool. If you're not wearing uh, a covering, if you're not wearing a jacket, well, we're seeing people wearing shorts and t-shirts. Um, it, your perspiration is just instantaneously evaporating. It's not doing anything to help your body cool down. Now, you may feel cooler because you're getting a, some air over your body, um, but you're actually rapidly dehydrating. Your body cannot keep up with trying to cool you down. It's a false coolant, really, if you're not wearing your jacket. And if you're, if you're, cool, if you're, if you're traveling like that and you're losing that much fluid, at the same time, you're also losing electrolytes, you're, you, you're losing um, salts. And all of these things convey messages. I mean, this is basically how your body conveys messages from the brain to the body. Um, so if you get dehydrated enough and you, you lose enough electrolytes, enough salt, then quite literally your brain's ability to tell your body to breathe in and out and do all the other things you take for granted suddenly is impeded and stops. Uh, and dehydration is a really serious issue and something to be thought about in, on, on the bikes in spite of the weight. We're able to carry 52 litres of water. That's 52 kg. Is that heavy? Yes. Is that horrible? Yes. But is that is that a small consideration faced with the possibility of you know, more serious lasting effects of not having the water? I'll take the weight every single time. Water pack. Do have the water pack. Um stop regularly when you can. The problem is, is when you can't stop regularly, like you're riding uh, deep sand. Well, riding the Sahara, um, we had the water packs yeah. on. There was absolutely no chance of getting that straw in your mouth whilst you're riding. But it's very difficult to, 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 to stop and, and take water on because starting again in deep sand, oh, it's just sheer hell sometimes. You don't, you wish you'd never stopped in the first place. I think a few manufacturers have also developed um, cooling vests. Um, we've not, we've actually not used them, but I've got a couple of friends who yeah, swear by them. And again, this, this has material that adapts to the ambient temperature 
and apparently works very, very effectively to, to keep the rider that much cooler. And the cooler you are, the more cognitively you can think and operate the bike, the better your balance and so on and so forth. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd tried those. No. Uh, we, we, what's it come down to? Can't afford one. Yes. <laughs> There's also an air conditioning system now. I don't know if you spotted that in the, in the magazine. Anyway, there, no, I am not. There's an air conditioning system that mounts onto your bike and has a hose go up to your jacket and it feeds through to your jacket. So pretty soon, somewhere not far down the road, you're going to see people driving around with a, the full suits on, fully air conditioned. How does that actually, you said it connects to the bike, so it's obviously drawing quite a lot of power from the battery too. I would assume that it's uh, it's run fully electric and it's it's mounted onto your well where you'd put your top box I guess and then has a hose come around to the 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 back of the jacket and it's just feeding it's just a standard air conditioning system it's quite simple if you think about it I mean being that a motorcycle has no drive belts or anything that you can connect to you're going to be forced to run it off a electrical which means you're limited in vehicles or in motorcycles that you can run it off of of course something has to have a fair size alternator but um yeah, it, uh, it sits there and pumps some cold air into you. To me, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I just, uh, I think that's going the one step beyond what I consider maybe too much of a purist, I don't if, know. But... If you I want think, air con, go and sit in a form. Exactly. It's, it's, a little, it's a little bit like seeing these guys travel down the highways with, with the trailers. Um, I know this may offend some people, but if, if you've got to take that much stuff with you, go get a car. I just passed a group of riders like that this morning. There must have been six of them in a row, all with, ah, it looked like a lot of gold wings and things like that, but they all had trailers and matching trailers. They're beautiful. Some of, oh man, some of those things are absolutely stunning. But um, again, I'm not, I'm not knocking trailers. Um, I think, I think they have, they're, they're, they're a great idea for a lot of people. Um, but the idea of, uh, of going off road, of, of really getting out there uh, with a trailer for us obviously isn't, isn't, isn't a practical option. And likewise, any kind of aircon unit, or first of all, we're thinking, I mean, it's all about damage limitation and risk assessment. So we're thinking, well, the extra battery, the extra draw on the battery, the extra, extra risk of it going wrong and drawing too much and, and leaving you stranded somewhere. Um, certainly neither Lise and I have top boxes. In fact, we're very much against top boxes only because we've just seen too many times somebody have a relatively simple fall only to end up fairly seriously injured as that top box has slammed into their back or even worse into their kidneys um, so the idea of having two panniers but having having stuff sat directly behind you that is flexible that can fall off the bike that can't damage your subframe um, for us that's the way to go but yeah, it's maybe, maybe we're, we're just purists. Um, I'll put my hand up to that. I like the idea of getting out there and dealing with dealing with the limitations of a motorcycle. You end up being because far less encumbered. Because that's the whole point of wanting a motorcycle, isn't it? It's the whole. Yeah, point. the idea that it's the experience, yeah, isn't it? It's freedom. Yeah. It's meant to be freedom. Yeah. The more tech, you, the more tech you take, the more the more stuff you bring along, the less free you are, the less energy you have to to actually absorb the journey because the more time you're fanning around and playing around with buttons and doohickers and, and we, whatever else. I, I think we have too much stuff. I'd like to just go back so to I. how we were. But for us, that's not a possibility anymore. Um, no, 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 no. It, well, yes, it okay. is a possibility, yeah. but we're not, we're not in a position right now to want to sacrifice our ability to share our journey. It's what you choose to, and, to, to do. Yeah. It's all about choice. The choices aren't easy, and there's and there's always there's always a trade-off, but there's always a choice. You mentioned about the top box. You're using a hard panniers, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Yes, and 
again, there's lots of talk about, oh, you know, I trapped my foot underneath it and it made me break my leg and it hit my leg and I wouldn't have broken it. Um, we're not that lucky. Um, we've been... I am, in fact, a glorified shit magnet. Um, we <laughs> come off our bikes. We fall off the bikes. Never once have I trapped my leg underneath it as I've been riding. It. Oh, dear, I'm going to get into trouble here. If, oh, you're, good. Carry if on. you're riding along and your foot gets trapped underneath your pannier as you're riding, that means you're dragging your feet along the floor. Probably in sand. So why? Is yeah, or they were, or they were, they were, they were stabbing their foot for balance. You know, you're going through something and. The, the, big, thanks, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest plus with hard panniers. <laughs> Simon, come back in. <laughs> the biggest plus with hard panniers is just the security aspect. Um, in the majority of countries. The, you and the bike are relatively safe because realistically the only thing somebody is going to decide they can take like opportunistically take from you is money or something they can sell while let's face it in the in the in the middle of nowhere uh, whether it's mongolia a small part of africa they're not going to hit the bike they may love the bike they may be wowed by the bike but they're not, they can't sell it. Now, 125 Honda is a different matter. So with the panniers, the fact that you can put stuff in there, go into your tent, lock stuff up tight, as long as you've got some decent padlocks is great. They can't just take a knife and slice the bag open. Um, and for us also, we, we had an interesting conversation last year about why we're using the Touratech panniers and not, say, somebody else's. And the criticism that was laid against the, the panniers was that they, they weren't strong enough. And I said, well, actually, that's exactly why we like them. Uh, I know there's a few manufacturers who've got some absolutely awesome panniers, but these things are built like bricks. I mean, they're so engineered, they're so strong. And initially, that can sound like a great idea. But if you are out in the boonies and you have a fall, when you have a fall, especially if it's a slow speed fall, all of that energy, all of that inertia has to go somewhere. Well, if the pannier is built like a tank, chances are the pannier frame is as well. So all that force gets translated straight into the subframe. Well, if you've got a choice of the subframe, the pannier frame, or the pannier frame bending or being distorted, I know which of those three I absolutely do not want it to be. One of the aspects with the Touratech Ziga boxes I like is that we have dropped them on so many occasions. For heaven's sake, you know, it's half a million kilometers. You unpack. Worst case scenario, if we've really twisted it out of, out of, out of whack, I mean, in a big way, you can do a roadside repair. You can straighten it back up. You can then, later, later on, we've taken some rivets. We've taken some bathroom silicon sealant. I mean, this is 99 cents material. You run the silicon along the joining edges of the base and the four outer walls. You push it back into shape. You use a hammer or rock, whatever you've got to do that. And then you drill a few holes and you use rivets. As, as those rivets bring the side materials back together again, any, any holes are left are sealed by the silicon within a very short period of time. You're on the road. The repair has not cost you an arm and a leg and they're waterproof. Um, I, I'm thinking of a couple of friends that I've spent two weeks with in the middle of Peru because their subframes were damaged because their their panniers and their pannier frames were so strong that, well, like I said, eventually that force has to go somewhere and hey presto, their frame.
I wanted to ask you about what special mods you've done to your bikes and um, what of those really work and you would do them again if you were to start again and which ones wouldn't? Um, that's a good question. In fact, there's, there's not many mods that we've done that we've looked back with and gone, oh, wow, that was a mistake. Um, I think probably the two biggest modifications that, um, that I've, I've been thrilled with was A, the 21-inch rim on the front, on which bikes, was, yeah. mine was from an HP2, which was laced up by Woody's wheels. Um, and secondly, I installed um, the aftermarket Touratec suspension. I've been running Olin suspension since the beginning of time. Um, and I absolutely thought these things were the, the bee's knees, couldn't be beaten. Um, we were approached by Touratec a couple of years ago before they started producing uh, what's yeah. now on the market. And I was initially pretty pretty reluctant to to change over to the Touratec suspension because I'm firmly of the belief that if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, so with some with some persuasion, uh, we got the units installed. Um, and again, I'm not just saying this to say the right thing. I've been blown away. Um, at the end of the day, I think there are so many modifications that we have made that we could spend hours talking about that. But if I was asked, okay, Simon, if there are only, say, three to five items that you can change on the bikes um, that you want to put your hand in your money and pay for. Hand in your money. Um, hand in, in your pocket. money, hand in your pocket even. I would say suspension, and I can't I can't rate highly enough the, the, the suspension from the Touratec guys, the track of suspension. I would go with the 21-wheel um, rim up front in the soft stuff and over the hard stuff. Um, rocks, boulders, especially at slow speed, the difference is night and day. Um, I would say some a great lighting system. Again, a lighting system is like insurance. You never really hope to have to use it. Um, but when you do, you end up being so grateful for being at the end of a, a long day, you're already dehydrated, you've had a problem um, out in the middle of nowhere. You want, you're, you know, rough track, you want as much light as you can. And you hit that switch, night becomes day, a lot of the tension's gone, and uh, it's a fan, it's a fantastic feeling um, of relief. The more progressive uh, springs in my forks. Yeah, on the 650, more progressive springs up front, um, which take care of the weight, um, make riding a lot more comfortable. What else? And I would I would say think long and hard about how you're carrying all of your all of your gear. Um, a good set of panniers. Bearing in mind there is, there is no one singular solution, and what works for somebody does not have to work for somebody else. And whatever you end up taking, equipment-wise or bike choice, there's a, there's a trade-off. There is one thing that I would say is something that we held off doing because we couldn't afford it, wasn't necessary, what I had was working, ain't broke, don't fix what it. What are you talking about? My handlebars. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely massive difference. What did you change to? I know I had the original. The BMW uh, droopy ear bars. Tiny droop down, which put an emphasis on on my wrists and my elbows. Um, and we changed to. Oh, what's we the changed to term? some uh, rental enduro bars. Just rental enduros. So basically, they're 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 not as deep. They're a flatter bar. Uh, they're substantially wider. wider, which has increased dramatically our ability to control at slow speeds. Um, and basically, the way the way the um, the ends of the bars they don't droop down by just a few degrees like the BMW bars do, and they don't kick back like the BMW bars do. So, if you look at a line from your elbow through your wrist into your hand, 
that that should be a straight line. Your elbows are a little little bit higher, um, but the level of comfort is is has been drastically improved. And again, a lot of people don't have any problems with the BMW bars. But when you start clocking up half a, you know, half a million kilometers, this stuff makes a big difference. It's repetitive strain injury. <laughs> That's what I have. You keep beating me. As far as electronics goes on the bike, have you have you had any sort of failures with the electronics? Being that they're both of them, I think are. are <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember reading about you. You did a whole wiring job or something. Um, what well, we the... have, hang on, we have changed the instrument panels on both bikes. Oh yeah, we, we have got that. Yeah, we. Yeah. Why? Well, the actual dashboard, because we're off road so much of the time, we were finding that we actually we'd actually been through two or three sets of regular BMW clocks. Now you've got you've got a dial, you've got a needle. Everything was still working, but what we'd find one morning or one evening is you go along to look at the bike, and everything's still functioning except for the fact that lovely little needle, which indicates your RPM or your speed, is now lying <laughs> broken and lifeless in, in the bottom of the, uh, the sighting area. Uh, and it's just vibrations, so we ended up changing over to the, uh, what are they called, the Turtec IMO computers. Now, generally complete overkill unless you're doing a rally. Uh, and there's like... 10 or 15 screens. We typically only use three, four, five of those information screens while they're riding. But a very simple technology, it runs off a very simple pulse magnet down at the wheel, very, very accurate, and it just works because it's digital. There's, there's, there's no mechanical breakdown, there's nothing to go wrong, there's no needle to fall off. Um, and that's been a great change. It's fully illuminated, so at night time, uh, when we try not to ride, but sometimes we're caught out, very clear, very easy to ride. Temperature gauges, engine temperature, outside temperature, um, just a lot of very, very useful information. We've, we've had to make, or we've chosen to make quite a few changes. Hang on, which is also makes the bike look pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Electrical-wise, I mean, additional lights. Um, uh, okay, you... plug Glenn. That's a good plug for Glenn. Oh, yes. We now use the clear water uh, lights. Um, and I think I've got the Erica's and you've got the Glenders, but they've just changed. Oh, don't be honest. Glenn, if you're listening to this, I can't keep up with the name changes of your lights. Okay. Glenders, Dahlers, Erica's. Yeah. Just give it a number um, for idiots like me. And I, I must admit, they, they've been... Absolutely amazing, and the nice thing is, is they don't draw very much from your battery. And you can dim them. We have changed our batteries over. Actually, I use the Hawker battery. Oh, it's not called Hawker in the states. Is I, think, it? I think I think in the USA and Canada it's Odyssey. Odyssey. Basically, it. it's a gel sealed battery. You know, you're on, you're on your side. You, you're, you're winded. You're falling over. The last thing you want is acidic water leaking out of your battery. But the amount of falls and drops we have, the a gel sealed battery again. Not only is it easier to transfer the bike from location to location, see air, because you've got a certificate, it's gel sealed, so on and so forth. When the bike's on the ground, you haven't got to worry about, you know, some corrosive material leaking. Juice. Yeah, and they're typically more powerful, which means that startups are easier, more, more power delivered to the starter motor, but also the ability to run additional components, whether it's um, an intercom system, whether it's GPS, uh, whether it's additional lights. Oh, God forbid you're that cold and you need to plug in your heated vest. Good Lord, yes. You most things do draw. Everything drawing from your battery. The last thing you want to do, even if you've been riding all day, if you've got your heated grips on, oh, which are a must. I always thought they were for softer men, um, uh, but they're not. They're a necessity. So you've got your heated grips on, you've got your heated vest on, you've got your calm system plugged in. 
uh, you've got um, your, your your additional lights on, maybe your fog lights because it's awful weather and it's snowing. Um, but in, despite the fact that you're riding, your battery is still not, the alternator is still not able to, to keep that power going into your battery. And so you turn off at the end of the day and you've got to start the following morning. There's nothing there. Um, you don't want that kind of situation. So we did go for the... the so in your experience, technically, that situation would be described as uh, bad? Technically? A, a, a little... Um, <laughs> Awkward. A little awkward. Yes. There we go. British understatement at its best. Yeah. What are the modifications? Um, oh, the wiring loom. Yeah, Lisa said to me uh, some time ago, I think there's this route in the Amazon jungle that we can do. Uh, as far as we could tell, it's not been done by big bikes. So we did spend six months planning and doing a bunch of stuff. And uh, I, I naively followed her in. And you on had the no morning choice. of the second day. No beaten husband. You know, this, you know the story, Jim. <laughs> So on the morning of the, of the second day, we were looking at this pretty ropey construction that I can't really call a bridge, but let's go with that. And uh, I got the bike up. Couldn't, couldn't, we couldn't push the, the bikes across the bridge. Um, I get asked occasionally, why the hell did you ride them? So this bridge is in such poor repair that there was no way that I could get the bike onto the main struts and then walk it across. Um, the, the parallel would have just crumbled and fallen away. So there was no way, there was no way to walk. So I said, look, I'll ride, I'll ride them both across. Well, long story short, I got my bike up, the wood crumbled, I ended up falling about three meters, knocking myself out. And to make a, a long story a little bit shorter, the result was I broke my neck in a few places and dislocated it. What I hadn't realized is the bike had been on its side for five hours. That's how long it took for me to get to my feet. And in that time, there'd been a few leaks, uh, water and uh, fuel, and a trickle of power had found its uh, way along this new route and it completely fried the wiring loom. So we spent the next four days, uh, me partially paralyzed and, and blind in one eye, and Lisa not feeling very well because she had a full onset malaria, stripping the entire wiring loom. Now for anybody with a new 1200 or even an old 1200, the wiring loom is what bikes used to have. Lots of wires doing clever things, not oh, the new, new yeah. camber system. Yeah. So we ended up stripping back 6.2 feet of wires. I think there's like 60 odd wires, there's 34 always, breaks. But it's always tied up in that great big thick black tape. That gungy tape. Do, do not touch. Do under not any open. circumstances. Yeah. Of course, it says it in German because it's from the boys in Germany. So uh, we got a pair of scissors, actually a Leatherman, and we got our Leatherman and we cut it open. And it was just like intestines. It was. Spewing out. Well, and the other issue was, of course, all these all these wires normally have lovely colours so you can identify them. Well, A, do I, I knew nothing about electrics. I was the guy that would go to the back of the Haynes manual, look at the wiring diagram and go, wow, that looks really pretty. I have no idea what it means. And turn the page. Well, it was even worse than that because they all melded together. So it took us four days to painstakingly strip 60 different wires, 6.2 feet then mend 34 complete breaks, then wrap it all up again and pray and pray and find religion and pray that it all worked. And we had two or three false starts until we finally got it working on the morning of the fourth day post-accident. So um, you hate working on the bikes, electrics. I do, and I hate mud. Yeah. And I found that the mother of all tutors is in fact desperation. So that was yeah that was that was the wiring the wiring I mean we got, but, uh, we got so to, I we have got to, to ask the... about the the neck though I mean so you had a broken neck in several places yeah but we didn't know it at that time that doesn't make it any easier though uh, Lisa's the pessimist I'm the optimist so when I finally came around 
and I was in a great deal of pain and blah, blah, blah. I just thought he was whinging a bit too much. Yeah, there was that pussy word again. So I remember lying there in the in the Amazon jungle, all the smell of the damp earth at and my nose. And we are in the real, true Amazon in the middle of nowhere. And I remember panicking and building up the courage just to move my fingers and toes because I knew if I didn't move my fingers and toes, well, oh shit, this is this is really bad. And when they when they when they responded, I remember that the relief was almost as overwhelming as the pain. So instantly my brain said, Okay, Simon, this is bad, but hey, it could be worse. And then it was the time of four or five hours to get to my feet, not some medication. It wasn't until we got to hospital three weeks later on that the doctors in droves were asking me in English and Portuguese and Lisa, well, how did you get here? Well, where I broke my neck? Well, actually, no, the whole point was I didn't know what I'd done, but it was three weeks ago. And they kept saying, well, no, no, you don't understand. When did this happen? And with each person, I, I was I was speaking some Portuguese at the time. So you say three weeks, they go, three days, three days, we don't know, three weeks. And I kept bringing in doctors into my, into my room that, A, were speaking better and better English. And each time they'd come in, the doctors got better looking. So finally, this guy called Dr. Jesus comes into the room. Lisa practically faints in, in love. He looks like he's just walked off a set of Days of Our Lives with impeccably white teeth and a Beautiful mane of dark accents. hair. Oh. And says, Mr. Thomas, you do not understand. Uh, you've broken your neck. When did this happen? Um, and Lisa and I both exchanged a glance and went, <laughs> Well, no, because surely a broken neck is Christopher Reeve or dead. So uh, it transpires that, yeah, I'd broken it in two places and it was dislocating. And the reason for the blindness in the eye was because my C6 vertebrae was touching my spinal cord. Uh, and it was made very clear to me that if I'd had a further half of one millimeter of movement in that vertebrae, I would be dead or paralyzed. So we began then to realize exactly how lucky we'd been because in the three weeks after the accident, we were riding and However, I Pulling will down wood say and one thing. And lugging bags across ravines. The first thing we did when we got into the city oh, yeah. was not take Simon to hospital because he was feeling quite bad. And by that time, I was almost half unconscious because I'd got malaria but hadn't realised it. I was feeling ill. Um, the we first thing we did was take the bikes to the nearest took bike the bikes shop. to the nearest <laughs> bike shop, got them settled in got them looked after. Remember, the kids come first. Went through the problems, etc., and then went to the manager, oh, by the way, would you recommend a hospital? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. were, the, were the bikes okay? I should have asked first. No, the bikes were screwed. Uh, they ended up looking at mine going, "What? how did you do this? Um, they stripped the entire bike, put in a new wiring loom, which is interesting. And yeah, this was actually, and then they overhauled Lisa's bike as well. They gave both bikes a 100-mile service, 100,000-mile service. And to our complete astonishment, this was taken care of by a wonderful guy called Andres Fuse. And he was the then VP of BMW Motorrad Brazil. Um, we were floored, we were relieved, um, and we got to know him and his wife very, very well. In fact, to this day, we're still in, we're still in contact with him. It was pretty pretty darn cool. So was having insurance. Oh, you had insurance for the bikes, for that damage? I had no, no, oh, medical, medical emergency insurance. Um, they weren't terribly happy because uh, my sur my surgery in the hospital bill came to over 200,000 bucks. Oh. Yeah. So if you can, if you go on a journey and you can get medical emergency insurance, yeah, it's. I mean, we don't have it right now, unfortunately. Again, that's just our finances. But yeah, seriously, think about making sure that you can be 
pull out of a situation and be make sure that uh, someone else picking up that bill because sometimes just evacuating you from a situation can be more expensive than the hospital visit. And uh, yeah, that insurance worth its weight in gold. You've been through, uh, what, 78 countries now, uh, something around there. What are yeah. the, the top few precautions you would advise the would-be traveler? Wow, that was a good question. Um, okay, Jim, do me a favor and narrow it down. You, you're talking about socially. Uh, you're talking about the bikes. Um, uh, talking about- I'm talking about socially. Um, this is going to sound, it's going to sound absolutely crazy and almost impossible, Um, but try, try to wipe your mental slate clean and take as few negative expectations with you as possible. Yeah. Because, you know, we get asked a fair bit, what kind of weapons we take? Uh, Look, we're British. We have harsh rhetoric and a pointy tongue. Well, actually Lisa does on a moment. Um, ow, stop that hurts realistically your best weapon is is a handshake and a smile i know how ridiculously mundane that sounds and how how and and how naive how naive um but people are people if you can catch somebody off guard if you can provide them um you can provide them a behavioral set that is not what they expect nine times out of ten whatever agenda they had before is gone um this is also very, very difficult. It took a long time to learn. Uh, you're at a border, you're at difficult borders, um, and you know that there are potentially going to be problems. I would walk up to the scariest guy, the guy with the most pips in his shoulder, the biggest officer I could find, big, goofy smile that makes you feel like an idiot, um, and a big old hand thrust and a handshake. The fact that you've done that is already applying a question in the mind of all his subordinates who may or may not have intended to rip people off or keep you there for a while or whatever. But yeah, get rid of those expectations um, and and be prepared for whatever comes your way. I mean, a great example is Iran. Iran doesn't get good news and it was certainly a challenging country to ride through. Um, it certainly wasn't an easy country to acclimatize to politically or socially. Um, but on the whole, both of us, um, and Lisa especially as a female, um, we were treated with interest. Uh, we were treated with hospitality, warmth, uh, and generosity. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that it was a breeze to travel through. Um, and there were social nuances that both Lisa and I had a, a tough and time we, dealing we with. we were actually there in a tricky time period, yeah. too. And I think well, quite up in the air. But, but it, was um, our, it was our job. To adjust to their culture because we were the guests we are choosing to be there so that doesn't mean when you leave you're all you know light and love and going wow that was great 90% of our traveling through round was fantastic I would love to go back it was a great learning curve and again my at least I can say that my opinion on Iran as a country is mine um, it doesn't mean that I agree with many many political and, and social aspects of their culture but again, that's that's what makes us all different. Lisa had a hard time traveling there. But had I had had we both gone into Iran um, with a hostile um, attitude, I absolutely guarantee that we would have got back exactly what we were dishing out. And that's but that's that applies wherever you are in the world. Absolutely. You get back what you give out yeah. generally. 
no matter how smart you think you're being, if, if, you, if you're not outwardly uh, positive, if you're not giving out those kind of vibes, for a better term, that is what you're going to get back. So be, be prepared to try to clear yourself of those stereotypes and allow yourself to react and interpret your first-hand experiences. And most importantly, be flexible. The best reason to have a plan, the best reason to have a goal is so that when you deviate and you move away from it, you can pat yourself on the back because you know you are deviating, you are moving away. But along with along with a clean set of underpants, the next thing to put in that backpack is your ability to be flexible. What do you do for a, an address? How do you like you don't have a home anymore, so to speak? I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean you don't have a home. How do you what do you have for home address then? <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I feel terrible now. Luckily we still have family in the UK. Um, so that that's an easy one. Um, but there's not much that we need sent. Not really. A few documentation bits here and there. Um, but then if we're waiting for, say, for a delivery uh, of something, say somebody needs to send us something, I mean, luckily we have just had some new communication systems sent out to us. Um, Thank you, Senna, for the new 20S plug from, plug. From Senna, yeah. Um, Which we love. And they wanted to get it to us straight away. And we're like, uh, okay, um, who do we use? Well, we've made some uh, friends, some contacts. That was the last time we were here. So we just called um, forward, emailed them, say, hey, can we use your address? We'll be with you in three weeks. And they accepted it on our behalf. And it was here when we, it was waiting for us when we actually came to say hi to them. And invariably, that's what we do. Make friends, ask them if we can have something delivered. If we don't know anybody at all in the country before we get there, um, it, it can be asking a, a guest house if we can have something to do what's the that. what's the worst case scenario they say no we haven't lost anything a asking a question hasn't cost anything or when we we're in senegal it was actually getting something delivered to the main post office to in the dakar main post office in in dakar and you just hold it there they hold it there until we come along and pick it up like the old post restaurant will the trip ever end or does it go on forever no it ha it has to end the trip in its current form the trip in its as current we're sharing form, it has to end Yes, but will the trip end? Let's, okay, let's be all philosophical about it. Will the trip end? No, no. because the trip is our journey together and, and it's, it's is, just different different stages. The trip is our life. It's how we live. It's our normal life now. Uh, the question, are you ever going to return to a normal life? This is our normal life. Yeah, is but it, hang on, hang on. It okay. is for, my normal for life. all of the waxing lyrical, which is exactly what that is, let's, let's, let's narrow it down, answer the question a little more simply. Will this journey in its current form have to end? And the answer is yes, because there is, there's only so long we can carry on, you know, in, with the restraints of our current financial predicament. Also, I think at the end of the day, something can be far better valued if it has a beginning and it has an end. If you're currently on it, you don't get a chance to look back and go, wow, that was, that was the best, you know, 11 years, 12 years, 15 years of my life. That was fantastic. At the same time, you know, we're, we're not naive young kids with, you know, 40 years worth of working life ahead of us. Um, Lisa's 52. I'm 44 going on 55. Um, and 55? You missed that 10 years then. 55? That's how I feel. But the point, the point being is that neither, neither Lisa or I want to find ourselves in our much later years, you know, in destitute poverty, just living off the glory days. Um, there has, there has to be a way where we can hopefully
begin to share our journey, hopefully make a little bit of money, share our experiences, have a good time doing it. But also and, try uh, to I, I want to try and pass on some of the knowledge that we now take for granted. I enjoy that. Yeah. I enjoy telling people what to do. <laughs> awesome. I think everyone's got that. Yeah, you scare me. So, yeah, I mean, the journey, the journey will have to, it'll come to an end in its current form in terms of, you know, how much time we spend being on the road and then in one go. But I, I think Lisa and I have a hard time getting our heads around the idea that we will, will ever stop traveling. I think that's part, it's in our blood, it's, it's part of who we are. We may just be in one location for three months, six months, nine months and, and go off for journeys on, on shorter periods to places we haven't yet been to. Um, and, and that's cool. It's, it's life, it's change. Um, no matter what happens, I just feel incredibly grateful for having shared the most amazing 11 years of my life on the road with Lisa. But we still have some final things that we need to do. We do. Need and to or want to? Important distinction. Both. Need and want. Okay. I'm a woman. I need and want, all right? <laughs> um, so we still want to ride through Canada properly, which we have not done. We have been into Canada, but we only went in very briefly to visit some family yeah. of yours. Um, so we still want to do that. Uh, I still want to reach Alaska. That's our, our last most northerly point to get to. On the Americas, yeah. yeah. And we want to return to Africa. We also want to get into Haiti and Cuba. We do. Which we're working on with a friend of ours. We're working on that. Who's speaking to the Haitian yeah. but our Minister final, of Tourism. Our final thing is... We have to return to Africa, and yeah. I mean have to. For, our, for ourselves. For ourselves, Africa just got into our, our blood. It, it's to go to go back with the with the skill set we now have, with the with the riding experience we now have, and to go back with the ex photographic experience and equipment we've now got uh, to be able to capture it now would be fantastic. However, Africa as a continent is always very volatile and so many of the areas that we've always hoped to get back to are still not accessible and even the areas that we have been able to ride across are now no longer accessible safely. And we, and we do appreciate that there is a very fine line between adventure and stupidity and uh, often sadly that line only gets identified um, when things have all gone horribly wrong. Once you've crossed it, yeah. Yeah, when you're, t when you're talking about going back to Africa, the, all of this is still on a bike. Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. yeah. What kind of question was that, Jim? Well, well I don't know, because, you know, some people, they start to maybe get a little soft. They don't want to sleep on the ground anymore. You know, those sorts of things. But you'd also talked about different stages. I mean, do you see this stage coming? Like, can you see the end from where you're sitting right now, or do you just know the end's up there somewhere of this particular oh, journey? We get, glim we get glimpses. We can't. We're not. We can't see the end. We can't focus on it. But we've got glimpses. Right. Um, I mean, that's part part of the reason for the last few few weeks that we've been here in terms of, okay, well, look, let's not let this just sneak up on us. Let's make some kind of game plan so that as and when the wheels stop rolling every single day, um, we have something to occupy our minds. We have something we can launch into that we can make the most of our time, and uh, and share what we've learned and experienced. Um, and, and part of our, our stationary time is is out of financial necessity at the moment. Um, and health, you know, uh, being healthy on the road is bloody tough going. Will um, you write a book or books or a movie or I mean, with all the photography you have, I'm sure you have plenty of uh, images for books. Well, we've been looking at that during our time here. It's one of the only periods of time that we've been able to just sit down and go, what have we got? 
and sorted. And we've been sorting all of our photographs and, and footage. Oh boy, how many hours have we got of video? Uh, 320 hours of video, 283,000 images, and 11 years worth of daily diary. Even though, we're not, even though we haven't published all the diary online, that's often because of organization and time, but we've actually got the last 11 years diarized. So that's, that's, that's a fair amount of media collateral. So I'm organizing a lot of the, the, the journal at the moment, putting some kind of structure to it. We would absolutely love the idea of doing some really impactful photographic work. But again, the reality right now is that producing it ourselves is questionable just because of finance, self-publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as the publisher is concerned, Often we've experienced that publishers, although enthusiastic about the idea, once they see the photography and, and, and talk to us firsthand, are very, very wary because a, a large format photographic copy book um, is, is one of the most expensive to publish. So they're taking a pretty big gamble taking somebody on as a first time you know, publishee and, and finding out that, hey, well, this just hasn't sold. I mean, we'd like to do a, a, a book, obviously. I don't think it could just be one. I think no. that's a bit much to try and get all in one book. Um, but again, it's the it, it, it's a minefield of learning about publication process, self-publication costs. Could we get a publisher? Uh, how we go about that? And whilst you're trying to do this, whilst you're on the road, it, it, it's impossible. So we're, we're just True. delving into that. It's also making sure that whatever whatever we do eventually write, and there, and there will be something, has has real value. Because let's face it, the world is awash with adventure stories of one type or another. So what would make ours different? Yeah, um, but there's a there's a lot of people who want to live vicariously through a, someone else's adventure, and I, and I think that I don't think there can be too much adventure uh, books or, or any books for that matter. I mean, I think that the the more there is there, the more that you feed the mind, and um, uh, the more the industry grows even from it. I think uh, I mean I, I would I for one would be ex I for one would be excited to read uh, some of your journeys. I, I just think it'd be great. Well, that's really that's really good to hear. I mean, often what is great is, is having this kind of conversation, Jim, because obviously spending so much time where it's just Lisa and myself, I think some of our opinions and some of our ideas can be skewed because we're so close to the to the material and to the subject, we're able to take that backward stance and look at our own um, the goals we've set ourselves and our achievements, we're not able to look at them with a degree of perspective. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that, if that is the case, that's wonderfully exciting and that's something that's great. Um, but we need to make sure that what we're writing is, is hopefully new and fresh and, and isn't just, you know, some kind of methodical, regurgitated adventure story. Both Lisa and I want to feel that we're adding something to the adventure market in I terms think, of our experiences rather than just following the formula. I think there, there have been so many people start trips and finish trips during the period of our trip, um, 11 years, people have come and gone and been and done and produced their books. And had and families had and families changed and, jobs four times. Yeah, and, and you know, produced the DVDs and gone out and done another trip. And it's, it's one thing I want to put across in anything that we produce is, is that is how immersed time we've been. period. It's, it's the movement of time. How immersed we are. Yeah, I think how, it, how the world has changed around us, not only changed us, changed around us, how, how the technology has changed, how the adventure writing has changed. The adventure writing, I mean, the term adventure writing wasn't really around when, when we started even. 
I've got a pretty, I've got a pretty good feeling that the person who coined that phrase was actually Chris Scott. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, and I think that gets overlooked. Yeah. I, mean, I remember, I remember so clearly uh, for year, months and years, you know, in the evenings and the weekends when we were imagining <laughs> this big trip, pouring over Chris's book, uh, The Adventure Motorcycling Handbook, mm-hmm. and reading about corrugations and what they were and how to stand up and. Wow, this guy is stuck on a motorcycle. And you know what? Still, absolutely an amazing book. I remember. It's... I remember reading the Tourtech catalog, and it was fifteen pages. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. it's now fifteen thousand. Yeah. But I think it's the. I mean, the people that were out there. That we were. We were bound to Helge and Ted, Sam. He'd been out. On Sam Manicom, Ted Simon, Helge Pedersen. These are the people that we were reading about that were inspiring us. And I was thinking, wow, if I can live. If I can achieve a fraction of what these, you know, adventuring giants have, have, and have achieved, what? wow. I'm pretty damn annoyed because we can't produce a book called Ten Years on Two Wheels, can we? Yeah, thanks, Helge. We can't, he's, we can't uh, do that. He's already got it. Yeah. Well, you can do 20. Yeah, but Ten <laughs> Years on Two Wheels just sounds really cool. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know it, go and, go and look up Ten Years on Two Wheels by Helge Pedersen. Really nice guy and an awesome book. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Where could listeners find out more about your journey? Um, we are currently overhauling our website, but uh, there is our regular website still available, which has a ton of information. But fundamentally, everything revolves around to ride the world. So that's the numeral two, not TWO, the numeral two ride the world. There's to ride the world.com, which is our own website, um, journal, diaries, video, photograph. Whilst we're building the new website, uh, we're uploading a bunch of stuff onto Facebook. Um, so come and say Facebook? hi there. Yeah, to ride, oh, that's what is it? Facebook.com slash to ride the world. Uh, we launched an Instagram account a little while ago, and that's uh, generating some followers very, very quickly. Uh, it's a great place for us to share the photographs that don't go to Facebook. Um, so that's Instagram slash to ride the world, or of course, Twitter. But fundamentally, any of those social uh, websites, if you just enter to ride the world, you're going to find us. Come say hello, share the journey, say hello. Um, and tell us about your journeys. Um, we love to hear about other people, their challenges. And if, any, if we can help anybody, anybody wants a piece of advice, some information, a GPS track blog, then we have a ton of information and we would love to share it. And that, of course, was Simon and Lisa Thomas from TorideTheWorld.com or Facebook forward slash TorideTheWorld. And that's the numeral two. And of course, those links will be in our show notes as well. that wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and of course we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it you can hear that it's not really a job is it i mean you couldn't really say that talking to people like simon and lisa is hard work oh what am i doing that's insane i shouldn't be saying that hey you want to do adventure rider radio a favor check us out on itunes and give us a rating come to facebook like our page do all those social media things that helps the world go around let other people know about adventure rider radio go to the website send us your comments really go to our website we've got a comment button we've got all forms set up it's a beautiful it's a beautiful setup for you you just go click on it and give us a quote we'll put your quote on the website so you get your your name up there with your quote on the website saying what you think uh, of the show i mean provided it's good of course
sure you drop back next week for another exciting episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. Field, Overland Travel Author from the UK, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah.